this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hey everybody, I get to bring back an old favorite format, Reading Lives. Longtime listeners might remember as a show I used to do where I talked to a bookish person about their life in books. And uh, bringing it back for a few of these bonus episodes over the year, Gabriel Bump is my first guest. His debut novel we talked about on the Winter Spring preview show, and it came out yesterday. And I want people to read it. And I want people to know about this author. And this is a great way to do it. Uh, Everywhere You Don't Belong, it's about Claude McKay Love is the the main character, a young man growing up on the south side of Chicago, kind of an average kid, except he's black. And it's hard to be just an average kid um, in America when you're, you're young and black and black at all. And this book wrestles with those issues and wrestles with them. And it's a really fun book, a funny book, a challenging book, and an important book. And so that's why we're doing the episode. Uh, Gabriel Bump grew up in the south side of Chicago, currently lives and teaches in Buffalo, New York. This is debut novel, as I said, and there's going to be more coming. So I want you to get to know Gabriel Bump, and this is a great way to do it. Thanks to him for doing this. We're going to do a quick sponsor, and then on to the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surrounds St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmael. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the hammams, secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. 
Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail for sponsoring this episode. Gabriel, thanks for being on uh, the show today. Your book's coming out tomorrow, so there's a lot going on. Let me get you started with this. Can you talk about your first strong memory of books, either as a reader, as being in a library, of someone around you with a book in their hands? Like When you go back to the big bang of your relationship with books, what what sticks out to you in your early life? Yeah, yeah. I think... um it kind of starts uh, in my in my own house. Um, I was fortunate enough to have an older sister. Uh, my older sister is nine years older than me. Um, so by the time I was still, or by the time I was getting interested uh, into reading, um, she already had a pretty stocked library in her bedroom mm-hmm. uh, that I could kind of pillage. And she, uh, in college, mostly studied a kind of African uh, diasporic history. Mm. Um, so I'd say my earliest memory of of books is uh, kind of going into her bedroom and, and taking taking off like the Nelson Mandela wow. autobiography, autobiography. You know, I did, you know, trudged through and didn't, didn't finish at that time. Um, and I, I probably assume my, my love of history kind of mm. sprang from that. Um, also, uh, and so those are those are kind of the first flash moments that that come to mind. Just stealing my sister's books and uh, telling her I'd give them back, and, and never really doing it. So she she's nine years older. So if she goes to college at eighteen ish or so, you're nine. So that's pretty young. Like probably you can read on your own, but a Nelson Mandela full text is probably a slog at that point. Oh no, this is when she'd moved out. Oh, when right? she'd and moved so out. These, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah, when she'd gone away to college, you know. So I'd imagine um, I really got got into reading uh, probably in in middle school. Mm. Uh, you know, before that, and even like during middle school and, and high school, um, I like played sports. You know, I played soccer and basketball, uh, and like most uh, kind of delusional young men thought that I could have a future in that. Uh, and uh, so like I'd read sports illustrated every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so I'd say as young, it was just a, a hodgepodge. Right. And I was lucky enough to have these books around me, uh, that I could peruse it at my leisure. Um, but in terms of, uh, like really, being intense about reading like I am now, that probably didn't start until until about high school mm. for me. So let's jump there. So what was it? What got you hooked? Uh, yeah, so I just kind of lucked into, well, I don't know. Uh, like I liked writing uh, like poetry, mm. I think, in high school, you know, uh, mainly because Deaf Poetry Jam was on TV. Right. right? And, uh, and so I'd stay up late uh, and, and watch you know, these amazing artists up there. And, uh, again, having older siblings, like they introduced me to a lot of hip hop Mm. and rap. And so, um, I was interested in that, in that medium. And, uh, my freshman year of high school, I decided to join my high school newspaper. Mm. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, I wasn't a spectacular student in, in any subjects really. Uh, I was kind of just middling average, um, 
wasn't particularly motivated. But but something about journalism mm. and, and working for the high school newspaper uh, really triggered something in me. Mm. Uh, and I can look back and, and see that I liked, you know, I liked the team aspect of it. I, I really liked the editing aspect of working for a newspaper. You know, it's like, so you have this 800 word story that you have to cut down to 600 words hmm. right? and, and make it, make it clear that process uh, was something that clicked to me for, for whatever reason. Um, and I was, you know, I was pretty good at it. Hmm. Um, like I was good at uh, talking to people interviewing um the clear kind of simple style came naturally to me hmm. uh, and so after about a year um spanned there and i won some you know awards for my reporting and i was like oh this kind of seems cool like i could keep doing this uh and that kind of really sprung uh, an interest in writing as an art form hmm. uh, for me uh, so kind of less the, the English classes where we were reading um, classics and more uh, the journalism classes were learning uh, by doing. And I just said, well, you know, I, I want to see if I uh, can improve my writing style. And so I just kind of started reading as much as I can. Mm. It's still mainly uh, these, you know, like Sports Illustrated style uh, flowery um, profiles of athletes uh, were the first things I really tried to emulate and get inspiration from. I mean, it makes sense. There is that, edit, there is that, um, there's almost a sports quality to a newspaper, right? You're on a team and you're kind of yeah. producing a product and the editing process too. I didn't come to find the particular joy of editing till much later in life than you did for sure. But there is a puzzle quality of, I've got this thing. I need to fit it in a smaller box. What can I get rid of? What can I move around? It has its own kind of like, almost crossword puzzle pleasure to do something like that. Yeah, totally. And then uh, as I like graduate just from um, writing stuff, like, I mean, still in high school, uh, graduate to the next stage of like editing, mm -hmm. right? It's like, how do you get this stuff to, to fit on a page, right? Like how do the columns lay out? Um, and I did love working um, under pressure on deadlines mm. too. I think that, um, I uh, thrived in that environment, right? Because I, um, uh, like, I wanted to make things work, right? And I, I wanted to kind of make them uh, the best they they could be. And that, uh, and those skills are skills that I keep with me uh, my writing practice now. Right? Huh. Like giving myself deadlines, um, trying and uh, sometimes succeeding at just pushing through writer's block. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the 
thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow in the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Underlined, publishers of The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. If you know me, you know I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I've been reading her since I was an actual child and reread her at least a few times every year. So I'm so excited that this sequel is out because it's reminding me about the original that I've been meaning to read for quite some time. And now I can read both back to back. So how do you solve a murder? You follow the lessons of the master, of course, Agatha Christie. Iris and Alice find themselves in the middle of another Castle Cove mystery in this sequel to the New York Times bestseller, The Agathas. This time, to understand the lies of the present, the Agathas will need to look to the mysteries of the past. The Night in Question is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. That audiobook I have my eye on, and it's narrated by Mare Dudeja, Sophie Amos, and Holly Linneman. Thank you once again to Underlined and The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson for sponsoring today's show. I was a big reader of uh, since I was young, but um, something I haven't really carried into adulthood is I r- love to read about baseball. I grew up in Kansas yeah. and the Royals were terrible, and so they were no good to watch um, when I was a kid. So I would read books about really the, the old time uh, of baseball, and that became a real interest of mine for quite a long time. Do you have a sports book that you read that you really liked, or what were the writers, or what sports writing has stuck out to you over time? Yeah, well, uh, and this like sadly is something I haven't kept up either. Mm. I think it's just a, a youth. Um, yeah, I don't know, you know, just kids loving sports, right? Like that. Um, well, you bring up baseball. You know, I I loved Red Smith, mm. right, the old uh, the old columnist. I think I've read most of what Red Smith has written. Um, but for for years, I um, like even when I went out to college and then when I went out to grad school, um, the best American sports writing of, of a yeah. century yep. was edited by David, David Halberstram. Um, so that was probably the first big book I read, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was this massive tome, um, or read like start to finish in, in a, in a steady flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it was to me a lot more interesting and fast paced than say that, uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I just different, uh, and the writers I really emulated, you know, um, uh, maybe one that people, uh, don't really galvanize as much uh, nowadays, but scoop Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, he was writing about basketball uh, and was taking slam uh, to a next level. You know, he was one of my early heroes, mm. uh, Gary Smith, Mm. Um, definitely, uh, SL price. And then even, you know, uh, David Halberstam, yeah. um, and, uh, Mark, Mark Cram, mm. I think like, uh, so I really liked reading kind of old, old boxing stories kind of stuck out to me. Old boxing uh, stories are so great. And it's, so, it's such yeah. a terrible yeah. sport, right? It's, it's horrible yeah. in like all the ways, but it, my favorite genre of sports writing that I didn't actually like the sport has to be boxing. Like it's own, it's its own kind of hagiography and romanticism. And but there is something about reading about one guy getting into a ring and fighting another guy in these smoky, like Madison Square Garden face-offs in 1926 or whatever. It feels like almost Homeric in its own way. And I still, I still have to find, I still find them seductive. I have to say, even though I, I probably should know better. 
No, absolutely. And I think it's totally true. And maybe it is just uh, how you have to focus on these two characters. Right. right. They're, they're yeah. going into battle. And um, I would say that uh, like when I come when I came to fall in love with uh, like fiction in college, right, and first took my creative writing classes, I think those old uh, profiles of athletes uh, influenced, you know, how I first approached fiction, mm. right? Like this kind of this human drama of people um, trying to, uh, I don't know, strive for strive for victory, however, however you want to say it. Uh, and then also, I, I kind of realized when I went to the University of Missouri initially to study journalism, right? And uh, soon after getting there, uh, and then, you know, up until now, I realized that my, like, interest in writing wasn't necessarily the um, the things you need to love in order to be a great journalist, mm. right? Like, this, uh, like hun- bothering people on the phone, right? Um, uh, chasing, chasing down leads, uh, doing your research. Like, a lot of it, most of it, uh, if you just want to be, like, a reporter, right, isn't totally centered on uh, just the writing aspect of it. Right. Like uh, the work you do for journalism uh, is hours and hours and hours before you sit down and and have to crank out uh, a piece um, in deadline, like in a certain style. Right. Uh, Yeah. So I was more attracted to this like storytelling aspect that I saw in that early uh, sports uh, reporting. Mm -hmm. Right. Like trying to create this uh, a picture of of um, of an interesting human being. Right. And, um, I feel like in fiction, uh, making that stuff up, right. is more fun uh, to <laughs> me at least than, uh, than doing the hard, like, uh, reporting research, tracking down. Right. Cause you think about, I mean, it's so hard to understand now, like I was watching the Super Bowl last night and you know, my kids who are young, they'll, well, even I didn't ever know a time when most things weren't televised live, but you think about when boxing was huge in the twenties and thirties and people at the most are listening along in the radio, um, yeah. And they have no idea. You can't describe the action in the scene on the fly like that. So really, the the I guess they were columnists. They weren't really reporters, sort of reporters that would write the accounts of the fights. But they're yeah. creating the scene, and they're describing the physicality, and they're creating tension, and trying to give some sort of narrative to it's this character against that, and what is happening. And that's not... I, that's not what you go to journalism school to do. I mean, journalism school yeah. is, is is a lot of things, but it's not necessarily sitting ringside and really sort of being a court sketch artist, I guess, is the closest thing of just sort of painting a picture for people who, who can't be there. Um, and now sports writing is so different because everyone presumably has seen the thing you're talking about or is going to see it or can see it. So you got to find some of their angle. It's not actually describing or evoking a mood. Um, but I can see how that is kind of a bait and switch. If you think that's what journalism in is, you know, describing uh, Joe Lewis or something like that. And then it's like, actually, you're going to be looking through court documents at City Hall to talk yeah. about, you know, uh, zoning ordinances. That's a completely different skill set. And it's valuable in its own way. But it's not pretty in the way that um, describing, you know, a, a six round knockout after a real grudge match um, can be. Yeah. Or, I mean, one one example um, that I go out to is something like fear and loathing and Las yeah, Vegas, right, right, right. You know, like this, you get this assignment for. I think it. I forget what the the publication that uh, Andres Times was assigned to 
to cover just this like you know um, dirt bike race or something right Mm -hmm. Uh, and it just turns into a sprawling account obsessed with like setting and and the characters and um, like when I would try my hand uh, at writing uh, because for a a moment I worked um, like with one of my friends that was running this basketball scouting agency Hmm. right and so uh, and we were just teenagers and he's since gone on to become like an agent but he's doing a lot of scouting in the Chicago area when there uh, was this kind of golden age of prospects right people like Derek Rose Anthony Davis um, and Jabari Parker and so I said okay well I like you know I like writing like I kind of want to be a journalist so I'll write some features for you and the stuff you know I was writing were uh, these like long intros of walking into like a basketball gym, right? It was stuff that nobody, uh, really wanted to read, right? Like nobody came to, uh, this site, like to, to read my flowery descriptions of, uh, of some like bench player that finally gets in and is able to, uh, shoot and miss, you know, like these, um, uh, so my instincts I think were, uh, were a little off brand. Mm. Um, at least for the moment. So if I heard you right, it sounds like it was a creating a creative writing class somewhere that turned you around on the idea of fiction. Do I have that right? Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, totally. So I took a, um, a creative writing class at the University of Missouri. And this was after I decided to uh, switch my major from journalism uh, to uh, sociology. Right? Like, um, and as a part of that, I, you know, I could take more, more electives. Um, and, uh, I took a creative writing class, wrote some short stories that I think like all or most, um, college creative writing students, you know, were, were kind of thinly veiled about, uh, <laughs> about my life, uh, right. And, and mainly about me, um, you know, not really wanting to, to be in Missouri, Right, like wanting to to do something else. I wasn't particularly happy at uh, at U of M. Well, um, I think for common reasons, you know, it was just a big a big change from someone uh, growing up in a city to suddenly being in the middle of nowhere, um, from being from a liberal place like the South Side of Chicago to being in a slightly more conservative place you know, like the, the middle of Missouri. Um, and the class was with uh, Jess Bowers, uh, who I think was a, a PhD candidate at, at the time she was teaching. And just one class uh, after I workshopped, um, workshopped a piece, you know, about a, a college student from Chicago and Missouri that kind of was thinking about going. Um, and I remember Jess like saying to me, um, you know, I think you're – you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, you know, I think that you're good at this, right? I think that this story is good. And I think that if you have a passion for it, um, maybe this school and this program and this place, like, isn't the uh, right fit for you, right? If you really want to pursue this. Um, and, you know, it's not the, the reason I left the University of Missouri, but I think that that is, um, like, always stuck in my mind. Uh, that just like confidence and support. Um, and, and it was certainly on my mind when I moved back to Chicago, uh, effectively just dropped out hmm. of college, moved back to Chicago, um, 
and heard that the School of the Art Institute of Chicago had this undergrad degree just in writing, right? And I looked up the class. I I applied after spending a semester back home um, and got in, right? And then uh, there I started. Um, I think that's where uh, falling in love with fiction in particular, you know, took place. Today's episode is brought to you by Random House, Publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher. A story of first love that will break your heart. Wild Ground is a bittersweet novel that follows two teenagers whose all-consuming relationship is tested by the forces of class, prejudice, and addiction in a small English town. From the beginning, it has always been Neith and her beautiful, troubled mother, Chrissy. When they move to a small town to follow Chrissy's older boyfriend, it's a chance to start over. And on the first day in their new home, she meets Danny and the two form a friendship that gives way to the slow burn of romance as they grow up, desperate to escape the confines of their world and the forces that hold their families hostage, like substance abuse, poverty, and racism. Now, this is perfect for fans of things like normal people, euphoria, and sex education. It centers working class women in small town England. It's steeped in the dialect and lyricism of northern England. So make sure to check out Wild Ground by Emily Usher. And thanks again to Random House, publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iamide and Adiba Jai Gadar. And let me just say, these two authors are powerhouse YA authors. They write bangers. They write fire novels that slap. Just letting y'all know that off rip. So ex-best friends Tiwa and Saeed must work together to save their Islamic center from demolition. Tiwa doesn't understand what made Saeed start ignoring her, but it's probably that fancy boarding school of his. Anyway, he's unexpectedly staying at home through the summer and she's determined to take a page from him and pretend he doesn't exist. So there's that. But when the Islamic Center accidentally catches fire, it turns out the mayor plans to demolish the center entirely. Shady, shady boots. So will all their efforts be enough to save the Islamic Center, save Saeed, and maybe even save their relationship? Listen, time will tell. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iamide and Adiba Jagadar for sponsoring this episode. I've done several of these interviews before, and it's been a while. And there's often a moment where people, a little bit different than your story, like usually it's I fell in love with books and I read a bunch of fiction and kids' books and all the way up. And then I took a creative writing class and that shifted the way I looked at all these things that I'd read. And even my reading sort of forevermore was changed because you look at it as a craftsperson, right? as an artist, as a trying to see how the sausage is made while eating the sausage, so to speak. Did you have that kind of experience or was it different since you were coming from more of a journalistic background? I, uh, you know, didn't know much about fiction uh, when I came to the Art Institute of Chicago or like my understanding was pretty limited, right? I think that my favorite um, fiction authors, uh, were, you know, like John Steinbeck, uh, and like F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, and when I took classes at the Art Institute, particularly with, uh, Adam Levin, uh, who wrote the instructions and in his uh, second book's actually coming out in April hmm. or his uh, third book. Yeah. The collection of short stories, his second novel. Uh, and he, 
introduced me to all of these weird writers that were doing exciting stuff on the page I hadn't seen done before. I like people like uh, Barry Hanna, um, George Saunders, um, like Lydia Davis. Right? And um, suddenly writing to me um, kind of transformed from uh, just – transcribing observations of, uh, of, I don't know, just landscapes we're familiar with, mm-hmm. um, into something that can be exciting. Like right? I started thinking about a plot really seriously, uh, in, in ways that, uh, had never even occurred to me before. Like, how do you write towards, uh, the exciting and surprising thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, how do we make, these imagined stories, um, like gripping. Right. And, uh, and so that, you know, that uh, changed everything for me. Two of the authors you mentioned just there, Barry Hanna and George Saunders are funny in their own ways. And your book is funny. Um, can you, we haven't talked too much about humor. Sports writing notoriously, especially the kind we were, the, the, the moldering old, doesn't tend to be funny. When did being funny become important to you? Were you always funny? Were you, fight, were you funny as a journalist? Like, when did being it and humor doesn't tend to get recognized sort of in the grand scale of literary history. Some of the reasons I guess is because humor doesn't translate particularly well over time in culture. Um, but talk to me about humor in fiction and what you like about that and how that came to be something that you cared about. Um, you know, I think that, uh, the humor and drama really work well together. Right. I think that, um, like, especially you can see that in, in Saunders and, and maybe even, maybe even Hannah too. Uh, maybe Hannah's humor comes more out of just ridiculous people doing ridiculous yeah. things. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that's, uh, and that's funny. Um, and I mean, maybe isn't, uh, too far off from how, uh, humor occurs in my writing or, or how I think of it. Um, like there aren't scenes uh, that I kind of wrote thinking that, you know, this is really funny. Like this is hilarious. Um, but I pretty soon realized uh, with some characters that they were just like funny, wacky people, right? Like Paul, I think is a good example of this. Mm-hmm. Right? Like he's uh, um, just kind of like out there, right? And never, thinks about what he's saying. And I think just those basic character traits, if we have them in mind with people, uh, can lend itself to pretty funny moments. Like, uh, I guess one, one I'm thinking of is, is the scene where, uh, Paul is, um, uh, like training with this staff that he bought to, uh, to, to beat up a, a rival, um, someone that has taken his lover. Right. And I think that humor in that scene uh, just comes a lot from, uh, you know, the circumstance, right? Here's this grown man from just picked up a, a staff at the thrift shop and he's twirling it around and hurting himself with it. Right? Like, I think that's, um, uh, that's a funny situation, even if the overlying scene is a little more dramatic, right? It's about kind of love lost, uh, and that juxtaposition, um, makes the writing exciting for me, right? Like, it, like shifting the emotional, emotional tones, um, sometimes page to page, sometimes even within a page, 
uh, I think it's more just to keep it uh, like fresh and exciting for me. I don't want to give away too much of the book because I want people to read it, go buy the book. It'll be out by the time you hear this, people listening. Um, but your main character's name is an overt reference to another black male writer, one not from Chicago, though, of course, there's a huge and prestigious tradition of Chicago um, black men writing about leaving, being in Chicago. Can you talk about um, your first experience with Claude McKay? Or how, how, how come, for maybe someone who hasn't read the book, Claude McKay is an interesting echo to give to what you're trying to do. Yeah, well, my first experiments, um, uh, experience with Claude McKay uh, was a reading, you know, If We Must Die uh, in college. Um, it took as many classes as I could on the, on the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and, you know, mainly because that was the period of time uh, – that were, that would get like its own class right in the in the English department um, or the canon of uh, or a part of the canon that would be talked about say in like sociology class if you're talking about that time and um, the Great Migration right well, you can't talk about the Great Migration without um, the Harlem Renaissance and kind of the the writers that sprung out of out of that movement um, and also uh, my mother is from Harlem. Hmm. Grew up in Harlem, and uh, her her mother, who is, um, you know, somewhat the, the influence for the grandmother in in the book, uh, you know, lived in Harlem for most of her life until uh, she moved to Chicago to when she was uh, older and sick, uh, moved to Chicago to live with us, um, and you know, I think naming my main character that was. Uh, not only a nod to uh, this important moment in history, right? Not even a nod to, not just a nod to an important uh, writer, right? In in history, but uh, more to like my maternal side, hmm. um, and probably my my grandmother and and mother, hmm. and because uh, even in this book, like Harlem is somewhat in the background, right? Like Grandma and Paul come from Harlem to Chicago. Uh, so for me, that uh, that connection uh, has some uh, personal significance. Mm -hmm. And the Harlem Renaissance, of course, I mean, it was very much a locus of a kind of dreaming that your own protagonist is trying to do is find a place that makes sense, to find a place yeah. where it feels like someone makes sense. And after Harlem, it was Chicago, and after Chicago, I don't really know where. I mean, it, it, it's not a mistake that your character doesn't feel at home anywhere and so many of these stories especially by black men in the middle of the century like in, you don't have to leave chicago for richard wright and native son or ralph ellison with invisible man of and even claude mckay and banjo or home to harlem trying to figure out where to be in the world yeah. and for a moment it feels like it's going to work and then it doesn't and that story seems is to is repeated over and over and over again so unlike in a traditional coming-of-age story which I think typically is, and correct me if, if you have a reading differently of it, is a, like trying to be okay with who you are, right? The, the end result of most coming-of-age stories is this thing happened, I came from a tough circumstance, or had a difficult individual trait or you know, family situation, and I overcome it. And that my coming-of-age is basically leaving all that behind, and now I'm okay. 
where these stories are not that. These stories are not, it's all fine in the end. Um, and I think that's important in a lot of ways. Can you talk about that for a minute? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and next we, uh, yeah, thank you for bringing up this book in connection with those. Cause you know, I think the, um, there is an obvious connection. I think it does highlight, uh, how little social progress, right. Has been made on, on, uh, on this kind of question of, um, well, this, this question for as long as America has been a country, right. It's like, where do, uh, black people fit into this society, right? Something that, that we're still trying to figure out, you know, even if some progress um, has been made, right? This general, just existential question. Um, and really the difference between, uh, you know, my book and, and those books and other uh, came, coming of age stories is that even if um, Claude uh, just decides that, oh, I've discovered who I am. Like, I'm okay with who I am mm-hmm. as a person. Uh, there are these constant outside forces, right, that are uh, questioning that, making making him question that, right? Like, uh, I feel like it's uh, not uncommon for particularly young, young black people uh, to really – just struggle with, uh, you know, their, their identity in, um, in a broader societal sense, right? Like not so much, you know, like, Oh, I like to read books. I like to play video games, right? Like I like to play soccer or, or basketball with my friends. Like that should seem enough. Like, why do I go some places and it seems like people hate me for who I am. Right. And, uh, um, and, you know, yeah, I think that's why, you know, black coming of age stories, uh, don't necessarily end, uh, with some great realization or, or epiphany. They, uh, usually end with uh, an understanding that the problem that they're facing isn't one, uh, that they can fix. Right. right? And, and that's, um, uh, that's something heavy to grapple with, especially as a young person. And I think you don't get over it. You just kind of get used to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that somehow, even if you, quote unquote, come of age, that coming of age of finding the promised land, finding that place where you fit in, you feel comfortable, is provisional. Like, it could change at any moment. Um, it's, it's sort of beyond your control to be happy in some ways, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it totally is. Uh, and the you know the degree to which that's not all true for uh, for any person of of any race right. you know there's plenty of people that um, just are stuck in jobs they hate right or stuck in places that they hate um, but there is an, an added element uh, for for young um, minorities right when you have this system that is um, kind of actively working against you. Mm-hmm. The answer to this might be no, but, you know, there's not too many main characters named Claude that are coming-of-age stories by, by black men. Did you, do you know Manchild in the Promised Land by Claude Brown? Is that something you read in, in writing or before this? Uh, no, no, I haven't. I, it, was, it's, it, it's, yeah. it, it was a big bestseller um, in the 40s and 50s, I think like 11 million copies. It's a memoir of him growing up in Harlem in the 40s and 50s and became one of the best-selling kind of civil rights-era 
books, but it's also it's another one of these stories about trying to find a place you fit in. And um, huh. again, for people interested, I, I won't spoil. But I, I it just cooked just as we were talking. I was like, oh, there's another Claude <laughs> in another story <laughs> uh, about Harlem or influenced by Harlem at least. So the, uh, it's for for our people listening, it's well worth checking out. I read that. That's a weird story too. Um, I've told stories about my own, but my my yeah. uncle had a whole bunch of books from college that he was getting rid of when he graduated and he dumped them on my doorstep as an avid reader. And this is yeah. one he must have read in a sociology class and I picked it up and I remember like 10 or 11 like crying my way through Manchild in the Promised Land. Um, I'm not sure I enjoyed it, but it really, <laughs> I, I, mo- I remember, I, I can picture it right now, this probably Book of the Month Club paperback that was um, yellow six ways from Sunday. Um, anyway, so for those of you listening, oh, well, uh, it's, uh, Claude Brown, it. Manchild in the Promised Land. It's a, it's an interesting read, um, especially what you do. You'd be fascinated, I, I think. To yeah, no, it. I would, and I guess listeners should should pick it up too. I yeah, think, yeah, so. go check it out. I, I, these are one of those books I'm looking right now. I don't think it's available on audio, which is maybe I should go buy the rights to it on audio since everyone yeah. has audio <laughs> right now. Um, let's fast forward a little bit to talk about your okay. current reading life and authors you like and books you've liked you like recently. Um, this is a question I always get a good answer from. Which author, if they have a new book out, like tomorrow, Tuesday's new release day, they have a new book out on Tuesday, what are you picking up day one these days? Who are you looking for a new book from? Who are you most excited to see a new book from? Yeah, well, I mean, man, there's been some some great books uh, coming out. Yeah. Uh, coming out recently. I, I mentioned Adam Levin earlier, uh, so I'm, I'm reading The Galley of, of his second novel. Okay. Um, so that's a, that's an author uh, that I that I'd, I'd run for. And this one comes out in April. It's called a bubble gum. Um, and it was, you know, it's a, it's a big one and I'm about 200 pages in and barely cracked the surface. Um, but <laughs> the I instructions was long too, right? Wasn't the instructions? Yeah, really the instructions. Long? It was long. It yeah. was long, but it's amazing how he writes. They don't, they don't feel like, mm-hmm. uh, at least to me, right. They, they don't feel like you're really ch- trudging through something. Yeah. Um, authors, I re- well, Chrissy Van Meter, Right, another Algonquin author. Her debut uh, came out uh, in January, um, and I I think for the rest of of her career, I'll be picking up any book she writes first day. Mm. Um, Jakira Diaz is the same. Another another Algonquin one um, came out with her memoir in October, I think, and is working on a novel. Mm. Um, uh, Caitlin Greenidge. Uh, his first book, We Love You, Charlie Freeman. Yeah, uh, Freeman. It's a great book. Came out it was an amazing book. And amazing I think book. she's working on a new one too. So uh, she's the top of my list. Um, and then, well, the Susie Laurie Parks, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever I hear that she has a new play out, um, I'll, I'll get it the second, second it's in print. Uh, I bought Lydia Davis, uh, her essay collections. Right, and I think that um, when her her second collection comes out, uh, that's another another first day buy um, for me. Um, Edgar Carrot, like I really got into Edgar Carrot. Yeah. Uh, so picked up uh, Fly Already. I think it was the last one. All right, when it came out. Um, uh, let's see, Saunders, uh, Mitchell S. Jackson. Mm. That is another another author. Uh, that I think can do no wrong, um, the way he stylized. Uh, I think uh, is that no? I can keep well. Um, Valeria Lucelli, uh, another author. Um, 
Sinasi, this is a good you, question. You, you've got a pull list. It sounds like you got you got enough on your radar. You, you you're checking them out. You got a long list. That's a good long list. Um, oh yeah, and it's not even. No, I know halfway. you can't do it. And then you, <laughs> you finish the interview, and it's like shucks, I should have uh, yeah. mentioned someone else uh, that you I forgot there. Uh, <laughs> no, but no, I think that like uh, there are there are more than a few handfuls of, of people yeah. writing now, right? That I, I just can't wait to. Um, to get their next book out, right? I'll get you out on this one. It's one of my favorite questions because I think as readers, we have these, these are the kinds of experiences we look for when we pick up a new book. Are they, do you have memories of just specific reading memories of being at a certain place and reading something um, that have stuck with you either, you know, a particular moment, a particular book, a particular character where you were in your life. Like if you have sort of a, a, a reading memory or two that stick out, um, I'd love to hear about those. Um, yeah, I think one, uh, maybe the first one that, that comes to mind is, uh, when I was in high school, I, I picked up James Baldwin for the first time. Yeah. Um, and again, this wasn't, uh, you know, um, when I was particularly thinking I'd write fiction or, or anything, I, um, you know, picked up his essays and read Go Tell on the Mountain. And these were, uh, as you could probably guess, books that weren't assigned to me in high school were books mm-hmm. I stole from my sister's library. Right? And, um, I feel like I came across James Baldwin at a really interesting time. Um, this was in probably 2008, 2009. So Barack uh, yeah. was running for president. Um, there was this uh, like concurrent spike in violence in Chicago. It's kind of when Chicago um, became, or uh, the violence spread to to national news and and was increasing. And I feel like reading all of uh, Baldwin's work and essays um, put the the current like racial climate, at least in in my world, put it in important historic perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm I'm grateful for finding Baldwin um, when I did. Uh, I feel like most recently, um, I really got into Barry Hanna again, like I'd be introduced to Barry Hanna in college and and in grad school. And, um, I wouldn't say that he really influenced my work in, in those two stages of my life, like in the stages where I was writing everywhere you don't belong or when I was finishing up the first draft of my second novel, um, but after I'd finished writing those two books, you know, I was looking for, uh, well, I want to do something different, right? Like I kind of just wanted my next book, uh, to be different. Like my second book is to, to my first one. Um, and just something about the moment that I went back into Barry Hanna, uh, really, really stuck with me. Hmm. Um, that just the, the wildness on the page right? Kind of, uh, how all those characters and stories are unclean in this way, like that, the grittiness, uh, tied into, tied into poetry. And, um, this is after I'd, I'd moved to Buffalo, uh, maybe a couple months after I'd, I'd moved to Buffalo. Uh, and like Buffalo is this gritty, uh, Rust Belt city, right? Like with a lot of wild characters walking around and, uh, just Barry Hanna, you know, spoke to me and spoke to my my environment there in ways that you know I'm uh, still trying to suss out. And I think that 
falling in love with Barry Hanna is, uh, is difficult for writers because uh, I feel you have this impulse to try and write like him. Yeah, that's a great point. It feels like you yeah. could do that maybe or you want to try that set of clothes on somehow. Yeah, and uh, it is a – I'm just going to say it's an impossible task. Mm. You know, I feel like I've, I've tried it and tried it, uh, but it is, it's hard to, to mimic that wild brain um, you know, consciously. I guess on the page. He's one of those authors too, where I feel like rank and file, just readers, people who like books, like, of course he has his fans there, but he's more, uh, beloved by writers than, you know, the, the sort of average reader. And actually that's maybe an interesting list of people like writers, writers versus the people have, you know, a, a more pop or mainstream following, even among book nerds. And I've never been able to quit quite figure out why Barry Hanna, Maybe it's the short stories just in general don't tend to do as well. And probably was, I mean, you, you probably know him better than I do, but he was best at short stories, right? Like airships and some other things, not as great, but the short story really seemed to fit whatever it is he wanted to do. And maybe it's because he didn't have to spend too long with these weird ass characters in these weird towns and just sort of could do almost a a sports reporting portraiture as much as anything. Yeah. And I I think that, um, I think spending, uh, the time we spend with these characters in the short stories um, makes a lot of sense because I read all of his novels. And then of course, like I've read the short stories uh, and the novels, you know, lack the the steam yeah. right? that the short stories do. I'm thinking of his first one, uh, Geronimo Rex. Um, and, you know, I, I loved it. You know, I, I loved every second of it, but it, it does read like a multi hundred page Barry Hanna story. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think for, for nerds like us, like language nerds and uh, just voice people and uh, like, see what kind of crazy turn, crazy turn of phrase um, this guy can do. It's exciting stuff for us. Right. But if you're uh, just trying to finish a book on your lunch break, I, I don't think that I would recommend that to anybody. Yeah. Like the second one, um, I think night watchman, is a really long, tough book, and I'm not even sure it's in print anymore. But <laughs> like, John Rex came out, and I think it was nominated for the National Book Award. And it was like, this is going to be—he's going to be a big deal. Like, yeah. and he was, but not not National Book Award winning that kind of mainstream um, effect. And I think too, in some ways, the second book not doing well, and then it's not doing the same thing. But you could use similar language to describe sort of what David Foster Wallace will do 15, 20 years later, and that became. Yeah that became the mainstream version that people wanted to read of these weird characters and sort of plotless extended whatever's they are. Um, yeah. And also another, another voice trap for authors, David Foster authors. Don't try to write with like David Foster waters for a lot of reasons. Yeah, people, yeah. It's very seductive, I think. In the same and I, I have a feeling that, um, you know, David Foster Wallace was, well, I'm mainly just thinking of Infinite Jess, but was writing on much bigger yeah, scale, right? Right. Than right. like, uh, you know, though, though that book uh, is long because of the information dump, mm. right? And these like complicated things. Uh, Barry Hanna, you know, we're we're stuck in um, two towns in the south, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> with uh, with characters that just can't seem to do right, um, and you know, that's that's. Well, I think I would probably even prefer that. That's what I love, but um, can see can see how other people might not. Gabriel, that was awesome. Thank you so much for spending the time. Um, we look forward to the book coming out. Go pick it up, everyone. Mm-hmm. 